Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Political Scene from The New Yorker. Jane and Susan and I, along with Tyler, are taking a break for the holidays and will return next year with brand new shows. In the meantime, we want to share an episode of Inside the Hive from our friends at Vanity Fair. The host, Brian Stelter, is a thoughtful observer of the intersection between media and politics. And in this episode, he talks with Atlantic staff writer Tim Alberta about the evangelical church's embrace of Donald Trump and the fractures that are emerging in certain congregations as we head into the 2024 election. We hope you enjoy the show, and we invite you to listen and follow Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair wherever you get your podcasts. And Happy New Year. Tim, when we're talking about evangelicals in the United States, who are we talking about? So we're talking about tens of millions of people who self-identify as evangelical and more specifically as white conservative evangelical Christians. And they're plotted across a pretty vast spectrum here. At the one end, you do have the sort of almost bloodthirsty militant MAGA faction that is kind of bent on cultural and political domination. On the other end, you have people who pretty much want nothing to do with politics at all and who view themselves as almost uh, separatists in that they are wholly in service of a kingdom that is not of this world and, and, and they might not even vote or be civically engaged at all. And then in the middle, you've got, you know, millions of people kind of floating, conflicted, uh, torn between those two ends of the spectrum and, and trying to work their way through this. What I'm really attempting to do with the book is explore those schisms in the church and and help folks to understand the degree to which politics and Trumpism and some of the culture wars have invaded the church and created these fault lines where people who agree on a great deal theologically and culturally are now being uh, pulled apart and, and pitted against one another because of their disagreements over how to engage with these questions of politics and culture. That was Tim Alberta, and the book he mentioned is titled The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. And I'm Brian Stelter. Let me welcome you to Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, we're going inside the church, inside conservative Christianity, and its twisted relationship with Republican politics. Now, you may know Tim Alberta's name because he's been a staff writer at The Atlantic, formerly at Politico and other outlets. When I started reading this new book, I was floored. I was blown away. Because Alberta, he's a Christian. He always has been. His father was an evangelical minister in Michigan. So Tim has seen firsthand how politics has been corroding the church. He asks in this new book, how can a movement dedicated to upholding Christian values support Donald Trump? So Tim, let's start with what's in the news this week. Uh, All of the questions about Donald Trump, his plans for a second term, the allegations that he's planning a dictatorship. I mean, this is now very much out in the open as a conversation. Trump was asked about this in a very friendly town hall with Sean Hannity earlier in the week. Listen, I want to go back to to this one issue, though, because the media has been focused on this and attacking you under no circumstances. You are promising America tonight you would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Except for? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border and I want to drill, drill, drill. That's not not retribution. I'm going to be, I'm 
going to be, you know, he keeps, we love this guy. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. Now, I think it's clear Trump has been a wannabe autocrat for quite some time. Uh, we could see some of that during his first term in office. The promises for retribution, for revenge in a second term are getting louder and louder. So, Tim, my question is, how do those promises, how do those pledges, how do his comments sound to evangelical voters? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And it does. I, I think to uh, some significant chunk of that white evangelical population, it, it does land differently because they have come to view Trump as a protector, as as almost as a mercenary figure who, sure, he may not share their views, he may not sit in the pews with them, he may not read the good book like they do, uh, but in some way, that's his superpower. He is free to fight in ways that are, you know, uh, unrestrained, uh, unmoored from biblical virtue. And that relationship with Trump has obviously evolved over the last eight years. What started as this very uneasy alliance for a lot of evangelicals with Trump has now morphed into this situation where, look, desperate times call for desperate measures. The barbarians are at the gates and we need a barbarian to keep them at bay. So when Trump openly flirts with authoritarianism and and talks about uh, sort of the, the, the power that he will wield to uh, not only defeat his enemies, but to defeat your enemies and that he will be your retribution against them. Yes. I mean, I, I think there are lots of, of evangelical Christians who are kind of diehard Trump supporters who hear that in an explicitly religious sort of us versus them, good versus evil context. Right, because as you point out, they've been told for decades that the Democrats are godless. The Democrats are going to try to destroy Christianity in the United States. And so then you have Donald Trump pledging to protect from all of that. So it, I think, in other words, we have to view it through a religious lens um, for many of these voters. Yeah, I mean, Brian, that's the thing. And, and it's really hard to appreciate this if you're not uh, a part of this world, if you're not steeped in the subculture. Exactly. Uh, but 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 for a lot of these folks who have been marinating for decades in this message that we are headed toward a cosmic clash here, the, the, you know, the forces of good versus the forces of evil, and that, you know, the, 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 the godless secular elites are coming for us, they're coming for you, they're coming for your church, they're going to persecute you, you're going to be on the run, um, you know, yeah, you, you start to hear Trump's rhetoric, and you start to process all of these everyday partisan political squabbles, not through a lens of R versus D or conservative versus liberal. It's, you know, good versus evil. It's And it's a part of this spiritual conflict that many of these folks believe that politics is now just a proxy war for a deeper spiritual struggle for the soul of the country. I didn't know that when Trump first went to Liberty University, to Jerry Falwell's Liberty University in 2012, this was, um, you know, before, of course, Trump entered the GOP race and upended American politics. He, he said to the students inside the auditorium, uh, get even. Like, this was his advice. This is his mantra way back then was to get even with the people that he viewed as his opponents or his enemies. I thought that was so striking to read that quote from a decade ago in your book, because that's like the premise of his 2024 campaign now. 
Well, and, and it sort of dovetails with when one of his sons, I, I believe it was uh, Don Jr., was at a Charlie Kirk Turning Point USA event, and he said he mocked the, the biblical teaching, the teaching of Christ that says, you know, to turn the other cheek. And Don Jr. said, you know, I, I, when, where, what has that ever gotten us, right? Turning the other cheek. And, and, you know, for his father to go to then what was the, the world's largest Christian university. And yeah, he says, I got two words of advice for you. Get even, right? It's like, well, hold on a second. Um, something doesn't add up here. If you are a follower of Jesus, then your citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. Your citizenship is in the kingdom of God. That is the place to which you are ultimately called and where your true allegiance is. And it cannot be a case of dual citizenship. You you can't both worship God and have your citizenship in heaven while also bowing to these earthly idols of uh, of political domination. And and mm. so for Trump to come to liberty and deliver that message that is so fundamentally antithetical to the mm. gospel of Jesus Christ, I think it sort of lays bare the diverging roads here that, that many evangelicals have had to travel in recent years. Let's go a little bit deeper on Falwell and Liberty University because it was so instrumental to Trump's rise. Uh, there was this um, infamous moment where Trump is at Liberty in 2016 and he botches uh, the scripture. Let's go ahead and play the clip. And we're going to protect Christianity. And I can say that. I don't have to be politically correct. Or we're going to protect it. You know? And I, I asked Jerry and I asked some of the folks, because I hear this is a major theme right here, but 2 Corinthians, right? 2 Corinthians 3.17. That's the whole ballgame. Where the Spirit of the Lord... Right? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And here there is Liberty College, but Liberty University. But it is so true. You know, when you think, and that's really, is that the one? Is that the one you like? I think that's the one you like, because I loved it. And it's so representative of what's taken place. I think what some of us are still trying to figure out a decade later is, how, how do his screw-ups make him stronger? <laughs> Oh, yeah. I'm, well, and Brian, the funny thing is when you hear that clip or if you watch it on YouTube, you can hear all the laughter and the, 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 the jeering almost in that auditorium as everybody is rolling their eyes saying, oh, brother, like, how do you not even know how to pronounce this book of the Bible that you're quoting from, right? Um, in some ways, you know, Trump not being well-versed in, in scripture, to say the least, Trump having no apparent desire to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you know, Trump going out of his way in 2016 to say that he'd never asked God for forgiveness because he didn't need to. Those were the things that really scared a lot of these evangelical voters in 2016 when he was running. And most of them, were loyal to Ted Cruz, or they were voting for Marco Rubio. Some were voting for John Kasich or Jeb Bush. Trump was really struggling with the evangelical vote early on in the 2016 cycle. What happened was he sort of began to convince these people that really what they needed 
was something that none of these good Christians could give them, that, that what they needed was the sort of person who could fight fire with fire, who would, who would, who would practice the same you know, gutter politics and, and play by the same you know, set of rules that their enemies were playing by in the culture. And, and it's, it sounds so strange because it is strange, let's be clear. But over time, that's why this relationship has evolved in the way that it has, because not only has Trump fought for them and and been their brawler in the arena, but he's delivered them real victories in ways that they think no other Republican ever could. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more point about Falwell here, because you talk about the transition from Jerry Falwell Sr. to Jerry Falwell Jr. Uh, people probably remember the sex scandal involving Falwell Jr., and the Miami pool boy. But there's a line that stands out to me from your book about Falwell Jr.'s handling, you know, you know, approach to the business and, and very much a business. You know, let's hear a little bit of Jerry Falwell Jr. in his own words, describing himself as not a pastor, but you know, as a businessman, as a real estate developer, and also as a culture warrior. Now, I'm not a pastor. I'm an attorney. I was a commercial real estate developer before I became a college president. Right. But what they don't understand about evangelicals is our whole faith is based on the theology of forgiveness, of the, on the fact that we, I mean, we believe Jesus taught also that all of us are sinners. We all sin every day. And that's why evangelicals supported Trump so strongly because that's their theology. And he supported the policies that they thought were important, protecting the borders, cutting taxes, all the, appointing the Supreme Court justice, um, justices that are, strict constructionists, all those things, just like the average men and women. And so I just don't think it's fair to, to, to look at evangelicals as a bunch of judgmental moralists when Jesus right. said, judge not lest you be judged. But here's the thing, Tim, Falwell Jr., according to your reporting, you know, he ran the university less as a presidency than as an autocracy, right, by forcing people out who didn't share his political approach and his his views. Is there a, a, a parallelism there? Is there something in common between Falwell Jr. and Trump, that autocratic approach? Yeah, very much so, Brian. And it's a really good observation because in some sense, the story of those two, the, the, the narrative arcs of Falwell Jr. and Trump are, are really interwoven. Um, and there is this common denominator of the business guy who is essentially, you know, operates at a transactional level and who really views with great suspicion and skepticism these evangelical folks. I mean, Jerry Falwell Jr. goes into some detail talking to me about how he never really wanted to be a part of Liberty, that he didn't even want to go there as an undergraduate, that he always felt uncomfortable with the people there, that he viewed a lot of their rituals as kind of strange and, and off-putting. And, and he was really roped back into the family business because Liberty wound up being almost insolvent and almost had to shut down back in the uh, in the 90s. And so Jerry Falwell Jr., he reluctantly helps to stabilize Liberty, and then his dad dies, and he's named president. But he goes around basically telling everybody, look, don't look to me for spiritual guidance. I'm not, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a pastor. I'm a business guy, right? And, and he's also a culture warrior. 
Falwell Jr. And he really believes deeply in liberty's mission, not so much as an institution to advance Christian virtue in the culture, but as a mission to win the culture wars politically. And and, and so that's where he intersects with Trump. All of these other conservative evangelicals in 2016 are looking at Trump uh, sort of wide-eyed and mouth agape and wondering, oh my gosh, what are we going to do with this guy? Like, we can't possibly have him representing us. And Falwell Jr., he's almost looking in the mirror, and he's he sees Trump and says, this is exactly what we need. For, forget about Christian virtue. This country's on the brink of Armageddon, and we need somebody like him who's willing to do what's necessary to, to, to win and to, and to save us. And so there's this real symmetry between the two individuals. Well, Tim, as I mentioned at the beginning, you're not just another journalist out here writing about Christianity and the Christian right from a distance. Uh, You have lived this story. Let's talk about that in just a minute. Hi, I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, along with Michael Calore. Each week on Gadget Lab, we tackle the biggest questions in the world of technology with reporters from inside the Wired newsroom. We cover everything from personal tech. Because asking people to put a computer on one of the most personal and sensitive parts of your body is just like, it's a big bet. Broader trends in Silicon Valley. There are just so many laid off workers out there that workers just don't have a lot of power. And the exciting and terrifying world of AI. It's inevitable that the internet is going to be filled with like AI generated nonsense. And so he just thinks he might as well make some money playing a small part in a thing that he sees as unstoppable. Wired's Gadget Lab is here to keep you informed and to keep it real. The entire point of the phone should be on some level to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) New episodes of Gadget Lab are available weekly wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair, and now we're going to get a little more personal with our guest, Tim Alberta, staff writer for The Atlantic and author of the new book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. So, Tim, I know this book comes from a very personal place. Uh, You've been working on this for years, uh, in, in part because of what you experienced from your own church in Michigan. Yeah, so Cornerstone is my home church. It's in the suburbs of Detroit. It's where I grew up. My dad was the senior pastor. My mom was on the staff. I spent like every waking minute of my childhood inside the church. I even worked as the janitor there when I was going to community college. So it it was my home. It was my tribe. And, um, you know, as I grew older, Brian, even though my own personal relationship with Jesus remained strong, I just really started to see some things in the church that that gave me a lot of pause. I, I think specifically the, the, the infiltration of, of partisan politics in a way that I think in some sense jeopardized or, or undermined the true mission of the church. And your father struggled with this. Is that a fair word to say? He struggled? I think so. I mean, well, listen, the thing is, my dad was was a very mature Christian, and so he had the ability to compartmentalize these things. He was very conservative and, and a kind of a, a flag-waving Republican, but he also would tell his congregants all the time, especially around election season, he would say, listen, like, 
God doesn't bite his fingernails over this stuff. Like God's plan for the ages does not hinge on who wins or loses some election. So just relax a little bit, right? I loved um, that quote. I loved that quote in the book because it's an important perspective. But a lot of his yeah. congregants could not or would not have that perspective. Yeah, I think I think for the less mature believer, they couldn't compartmentalize as much. And, and to be clear, I think that there were times where, and I write about this in the book, where— um, you know, and this was like the hardest part of the book, obviously. Like, I, you know, my dad, I think, did at times get over his skis because he cared so passionately about certain issues. And 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 really, he cared so passionately about the United States. There's this remarkable scene that you describe uh, during the funeral services for your father, where people are coming up, congregants are coming up, family, friends are coming up to you and basically lambasting you for... Uh, Gosh, for not being slavishly loyal to Donald Trump. How else how else should I say it? You know, these congregants, these family friends are listening to Rush Limbaugh attack you, and they're siding with Rush. And it just to think that this is coming up in the middle of the funeral. You know, I, I lost my mom a few weeks ago and we had the funeral service in Maryland. I was back at my home church, the church where I grew up. And I'm I, I just can't I can't fathom what that feet would feel like, you know, to to get to get beaten up about politics in the pews. I guess the point, Tim, is this is happening to a lot of people. This is breaking up families. Yeah. And Brian, I mean, first of all, you know, I'm, I've told you this off air, but I'm, you know, I, I know how devastating it is to lose a parent. So I'm just, you know, I'm sorry, man. And I'm, I'm praying for you because I, you. I just, I know the hurt that's in your heart right now. Um, Thank you. You know, and, and, and that is why I shared my story. It's not to be dramatic and, and not to, I mean, it was a crazy thing to have happen and I'm still sort of reeling from it four years later, but there's a universality to to this, you know, example, yes, which is exactly you you've got you've got churches all across the country that are fracturing in part due to this sort of zero sum tribal political warfare. Um, and, and to be clear, most of these churches, it's not like there's some 50-50 split between the conservatives and the liberals and they're going at it. No, no, no. I'm talking like most of these churches I'm exploring in the book are very conservative through and through. The question isn't about, you know, how they feel about abortion. The question is inside these churches, do they come to church to worship God or do they come to church to advance some other kingdom, some other agenda? Do, do they want to use their faith to reach the masses who are unchurched and to witness to them and tell them about the redeeming power of Jesus Christ? dying for them on the cross as a sacrifice for all of humanity's brokenness, or do they want to wield their faith as a weapon to own the libs and to win the culture wars and to get a Republican politician elected? I mean, like that is in many ways the fundamental divide here that we're exploring. Yes. Uh, when I was back at my home church, so I, I grew up in the United Methodist Church, and I had not been back there in many years until I was there for my mom's service. And I noticed some of the signage, some of the messages on the website, you know, all are welcome, all are welcome here. And I thought to myself, there's a political identity here as well. Um, and it's a different political identity than the the church that, that you describe, but, you know, the, 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 your, your home in Michigan. Um, but there's also a political identity there. Am I right? Churches have um, 
have planted these flags, I mean, like literally and figuratively, uh, to kind of signal to the outside world, well, here's what kind of church we are. And, and, and you may not want to come here if you believe in X. And, and by the way, X has nothing to do with Jesus. It has nothing to do with the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. No, no, no. Like we are, as one pastor told me in chapter two of the book, he's the pastor of the church where I was born up in the Hudson Valley. He said, look, we've taken the biblical standard uh, and we've replaced it inside the church with something else, with a totally different standard. And what that does is it creates a barrier to entry. I mean, if you believe as I do, Brian, like I'm serious about my faith and I'm unapologetic in talking about it. If you believe that we have serious brokenness in this world and problems that are so deep-seated and so painful that the only solution to them, ultimately, in, in my view, is Christ, then that is the standard and that is the message that Christians are called to take to everyone in the world. And we can't do that if we've got this flag planted outside of our church saying, you can't come here if you're some liberal, or you can't come here if you're some Trump voter. Like, that's not the church. That's not what the church is called to be. Yes, I was struck by another pastor that you quote in the book. This is in chapter four. This is Russell Moore saying, what percentage of churches would you say are grappling with these issues? 100%. All of them. I don't know a single church that's not affected by this. And and Moore describes hearing from pastors all the time saying, I'm crushed. I'm broken. I don't know what to do. So they don't know how to preach to their flocks in this political environment. No, of course they don't, because these are guys who went to seminary to learn about Trinitarian theology and to study the ancient church councils and the creeds and to uh, and to go deep into Greek linguistics and to study Hebrew. Like these these guys didn't they didn't train for this, Brian. You know, I, I've spent so much time with pastors all around the country, and it, it's almost like um, you know if you. Uh, if you apprenticed as an electrician and spent years learning how to be a master electrician, and then suddenly somebody puts you in the middle of a uh, of SeaWorld and you're supposed to tame the dolphins. I don't know. I just came up with that metaphor. That probably doesn't really make any good. sense. That probably was perfect. Make, but, but like you're looking around and you're like, well, what the heck do I know about, ta- about training dolphins? Like this is just, <laughs> it's just not my thing. This is not the world to which I was called to work and, and, and serve in. And, yes. you know, I just feel a great deal of empathy for these guys because they're completely outgunned. They're just, they're, they're outmatched. More to come with Tim Alberta in just a minute. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back here on Inside the Hive talking with Tim Alberta. 
So, Tim, as I was reading the book, I was thinking about all the connections to the information environment that we all live in. This this poisoned information universe, you know, conspiracy theories about a 5G and about COVID. You know, that's one of the themes throughout your, your story you're telling is that some congregants were radicalized uh, during the pandemic. You know, we're angry about churches being shut in person. We're, we're, we're hearing crazy conspiracy theories online and about, about the elite causing the pandemic. And, and basically, you keep coming back to this idea that— People's information diets are, am I right to say, say radicalizing, you know, causing this extremism? Yeah, well, yes, they are. And, and so there's two problems, right? Uh, you have the radicalizing of the information diet, for sure. That, that is a big problem that exists. I think the even bigger problem is for the people who are not given to kind of radical thinking, who are not like way out at the fringe or even flirting with the fringe. I think for the mainstream of the conservative evangelical movement, mm-hmm. there is a, a disproportionality crisis. And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, if you go to church on Sunday morning, you are going to be in the word with your pastor for, you know, 30 minutes, maybe 40, 45 minutes, and you sing some songs and you say the prayers, and then you are out in the world for the rest of the week. And for most of these folks, as they're out in the world, they are marinating in talk radio, in cable news, in social media, all of this information that is aimed at making them angry, fearful, hostile. And and so when you are a Christian and on Sunday morning, you are hearing about you know, praying for your enemies and for those who persecute you and, and turning the other cheek and loving your neighbor as yourself. I mean, Jesus cited two commands as more important than the rest, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, right? Those are the commands that you hear on Sunday morning for 45 minutes, but then for four, five, six, ten hours during the week, you're hearing the exact opposite. Mm. And it's that ratio being so far out of whack that I think is really at the heart of the crisis here. It relates to the echo chamber problem we talk about in secular media all the time. You quote your father's successor at Cornerstone, Chris Winans, saying the church is supposed to challenge us, but a lot of these folks don't want to be challenged. They definitely don't want to be challenged where their idols are, right? So they 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 want to hear what they already believe, which is very much an issue we talk about all the time with secular media. That, well, that's look, you know, the church is an institution just like any other human institution where people can vote with their feet. And if you are a pastor who chooses to confront your congregation over this stuff and 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 really try to disciple them and say, look, we're losing our way here and we need to get back to basics and keep the main thing the main thing, they'll leave. They'll, they will. They'll, they, they don't want to hear it. Continuing on this theme, you write you write in chapter 12 about this gap people are living in um, between a pre-technology age that's fading away and a futuristic world that's yet to fully arrive. And you say the resulting anxiety around the crumbling of institutions, the instability of cultures, the insufficiency of economies creates a crisis at the intersection of religion and politics. Again, bigger than evangelicals, something that we're all feeling in different ways, uh, the crumbling of institutions. Can these churches survive? Yeah, of course they can. And the way that they survive is doing what Chris Winans was challenging his congregation to do in that in that section that you alluded to a moment ago, which is 
listen, what is the purpose of the church? And this is where I end the book. This is the epilogue of the book where I come back to my home church for the first time since my father's funeral. And my dad's successor is this brilliant young guy who has every gifting imaginable to 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 preach and to lead a big church, right? He's he's a student of the scriptures, he's eloquent, he's humble, he's kind, he's just he's got the whole package. His one deficiency is that he's not some conservative MAGA Republican, right? He doesn't like guns. I mean, people like in a community like mine, like that's like, that's like crazy. That's heresy. You don't, you know, this is a guy who his entire view of politics, whether it be abortion or poverty or any other issue, it's informed by scripture. So what Chris Winans has done at, at this church At first, he was almost run out of the place when my dad died because he was such a change of pace. And this is to my dad's credit. He knew who this guy was. My dad thought that it was a good thing that his successor would challenge people to think differently inside the church. But what Pastor Winans has done is said, listen, what is the purpose of the church? Is it to win the culture wars? Is it to elect politicians? Or... Is it to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it to share the saving news of Jesus with the unbelievers all around the world in your own community and to the ends of the earth who are desperately in need of that saving grace? And if, in fact, that is the message, if, in fact, that is the purpose and the mission of the church— then all this other stuff, we have to set it to the side. We, 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 we cannot allow ourselves to take our eye off the ball and become consumed with these things that mm. are really in service of this kingdom here and not the kingdom to which we are ultimately called to belong. So as people read about Christian nationalism, as they read about the state of the Republican Party, you know, for example, here's a headline from NPR uh, earlier this week. House Speaker Mike Johnson draws scrutiny for ties to far-right Christian movements. You know, it, it does seem like the Speaker right now is the current vanguard of the Christian right in, in Washington now that, you know, uh, Mike Pence has had to drop out of the presidential race. Um, how, how should people interpret uh, what, they, what they read and hear about the 2024 election? What, what do they need to know from your reporting? Well, look, one of the things that's underappreciated, Brian, that I would really stress is that this is going to be the first post-Roe v. Wade presidential election in America. And for millions of conservative white evangelical voters who have considered themselves to be single-issue voters, you know, abortion is the most important thing every four years that mobilizes them to get out and vote in a presidential contest. Suddenly, that issue has been thrown back to the states. It's really no longer a federal issue. It's been kind of depressurized at the presidential level. And so, I think there's really a great question here of not necessarily does Trump win some smaller percentage of these voters. I'm guessing that, you know, roughly within a few points one way or the other, it's probably going to be the same as we've seen with the Republican nominee carrying roughly three quarters of that white evangelical vote in this upcoming election, uh, just as they have in the last, you know, half dozen or so elections. But in terms of raw turnout, Could you see some significant chunk of these voters decide to vote third party or decide just to stay home altogether because they're not willing to vote for Trump again, but they also don't feel right voting for Joe Biden because of his pro-choice stance? So that, I think, is a fascinating 
thing to keep an eye on over the next year, uh, you could see really a historic drop-off potentially in turnout just because of that one issue. Mm. At the end of this, Tim, as you're out on this book tour, do you feel more or less faithful personally? I really, Brian, I don't take this answer for granted, but I feel immeasurably more faithful. My personal relationship with with Christ has never been stronger. I, I feel just... I can't articulate how grateful I am uh, to God for sort of sustaining me in this project. And and listen, for your, some of your listeners out there who think that I sound like a space alien saying all of this, that's that's completely fine. I understand. I would just say that the uh, the entire draw of the gospel is to be countercultural, to to not fit into the patterns of this world. And and if you believe that there was a historical figure named Jesus, as is documented way outside of the pages of the Bible, if you believe that there was that historical figure, I would invite you to to go and do a little bit of reading and a little bit of research into his life. And, And you might reach some conclusions that completely change your view of the world. Hmm. Listen, I grew up saying the Lord's Prayer, the same one that gives you the title of the book, and yet reading your book helped me understand the prayer better. I, so much I feel I understand more clearly now after reading this. So thank you, Tim. Thank you for the conversation. Great talking with you. Yeah, likewise, Brian. Thanks for having me. And once again, the book is titled The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. It is shooting up the Amazon sales charts as we speak. This episode of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair is produced by Michael May. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our engineer is James Yost. Mixing is by Bob Mallory. And I'm Brian Stelter. Thank you so much for listening. Send your feedback anytime. Email me at bstelter at gmail.com or tweet me, thread me, whatever you want. I'm at Brian Stelter on all the sites. We'll be back next Thursday with more Inside the Hive.